Welcome to the Christian Music Archive podcast, conversations about Christ, community, and music. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I am privileged to chat with a musical guest who is listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. Today, I get to talk with CCM legend Paul Clark. Now, this interview almost didn't happen. You see, I got a call from Paul about an hour before we were to chat, and he said, can we push our call off a little bit? I'm in the hospital and won't make it back in time. <laughs> well, of course I said yes. This is a conversation I've been waiting to have with this true pioneer of contemporary Christian music, so I could wait a couple of weeks. But no, Paul just wanted to push this back a couple of hours. <laughs> I tried to talk him out of it, but he insisted. So a couple of hours later, Paul got home ate a quick turkey sandwich, and then jumped on Zoom, and we had a fantastic conversation. We talked about old-school analog recording, the franchising of the church, and the importance of being exactly the person God has called you to be. And man, once we started talking, the time flew by way too quickly, and I hope you'll find this conversation as interesting as I do. But before we get started, I wanted to give you an update on our partnership with Mercy, Inc., at the beginning of this year, we decided that all of the profits from our endeavor will support the work of mercy around the world. And this week, we cut our first check for more than $130. My goal each quarter is to increase our profit to Mercy, Inc., and you can help by clicking on an advertisement on our website, buying music through one of our affiliate links, or by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash ccmexchange. So, for those of you who have done one of those things, thank you for helping us help Mercy, Inc. Well, before we get into our interview today, I bet you you know who's in the studio with me. It's Doug Hoffman, Executive Director for Mercy, Inc. And today we're talking about Seeds of Hope. That sounds interesting. Talk about Seeds of Hope. Seeds of Hope is where Mercy, Inc. and the Empowering Lives International have partnered together to teach agriculture Farming God's Way, quite honestly, uh, in Africa. We're involved right now in six countries, soon to go to 12 countries, oh, wow. uh, with, a, with a basic agriculture program. Most of Africa is still land-based. Uh, many people, when the colonies uh, were kind of kicked out, then land got distri distributed back to the various people. And so everybody owns just a little piece of ground. So oftentimes what we would consider it is, is a major garden. Okay. So we're teaching them how to produce something uh, and produce enough for excess, not only for their own selves, okay. but also to sell. So, you know, fruit, fruit and vegetables is what's primary thing. But if they cannot have to go to the market for that, instead raise their own, that improves their economic well-being, plus gives them a sense of, of worth that they can provide for their family. So we're teaching them the basics and we're teaching champions in particular in the different communities how to do that so that they could teach their fellow neighbors. They reached out to their champions in the various communities and said, hey, if you were provided a grant, what would you do? Yeah. And they came back with ideas that for $300, they could change their village. The $300 went to, to some basic primary food just to tide them over, but the other part was seeds for the vegetables. And so they'd already taught them how to raise the vegetables and how to do it properly and to be productive. They gave them quality seeds uh, and they started to raise those, those seeds. And it was just beautiful to see that kind of entrepreneurship. Yeah. We end up supporting uh, 12 villages with this, quite honestly, a $300, basic $300 grant. Wow. And they just multiplied it, multiplied it because we had done some training basically ahead of time. So they were empowered. And then we empowered them to make their own decisions on how to do it. So it's just wonderful how it works. Wow, isn't that an amazing use of 300 bucks? For just $300, you can change a community and help them to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining. And that's why I love Mercy so much. They're doing some amazing things around the world. I'd invite you to go to our website, christianmusicarchive.com mercy to learn why I'm so passionate about helping Mercy Inc. and supporting the work that they're doing. And while you're there, you can click the link to go to Mercy's website, 
where you can learn more about Seeds of Hope and maybe getting involved yourself by providing a $300 gift to help make a community in Africa self-sufficient. Paul Clark started his music career writing songs about his brand new faith and sharing them with whoever would listen. His first album from 1971 sold so well that executives at Word Records offered to help distribute his label and his records because it was something new and they saw this Jesus music was really positively impacting the country for Jesus. Flash forward 50 years and Paul is still active in helping people use music as a tool for sharing the gospel. After more than 30 albums, Paul's passion for reaching the lost hasn't wavered one bit, and I'm really excited for you to hear his story. So let's jump into the conversation right after Paul got back from the hospital. Well, you mentioned it just a little bit ago, but I was realizing that uh, your first record came out <clears throat> last century, <laughs> 50 years ago. 50 years ago. It was actually, I recorded it 50 years ago this year, two, 1971. Yeah. Oh, but uh, that's 50 years ago. <laughs> that that hardly seems possible, right? I came to Christ in in uh, the spring of '70, so but it was a year later till I recorded my first album. But it, it's you know it's been it's gone by so fast, but also at the same time too, it does seem like a lifetime ago. So uh, obviously, it's been an amazing ride. Uh, one of the things we're, I'm sure we're talking about is I'm actually I've been pressured for years and years to do a book. Mm. But man, there's so many stories, and you know, who wants to read all the stories? But I'm kind of, I am kind of motivated now to, to write a. I call it, it's a memoir, but it's not a memoir. Like then I did this, and then I did that, and then I met him, and then I did it. You know, I don't want to do that. What I want to do is, since it's been 50 years, yeah, and my life is really very easily defined in five-year segments. I can mm. see five every five years something big happens that turns my boat. I've shifted music genres, you know every five years and stuff so uh you know now it's 20 20 just finished so i'm ready to start a new five-year pattern but um i think that what i have to do is like do 10 chapters uh five-year chap five ten-year chapters mm -hmm. and then uh, have a front chapter and a back chapter because <clears throat> what i want to do actually is i want to create um a dialogue with the listener and i want to create a um like a field um manual if you want to mm -hmm. call it that it's some, you know, 20 year old kids going to pick them and go, dang, that's what I'm going to do with my life. You know? So that's, that's what I want to do. I want to try to help. Um, you know, I myself was a, was a wonderful beneficiary of a, a Bible teacher. He was controversial among some people, but highly misunderstood. If he would have had the internet, he never would have been misunderstood. Mm. But, uh, cause his stuff would have been documented. There's a man named Derek Prince. Okay. And, uh, he took me his wing as a brand new believer. It was a collision of collisions. The way we met, you could, could have got 10 Hollywood writers in a room and never designed this collision. But, uh, you know, he taught me Greek and Hebrew. He taught me how to discern the Holy Spirit. He, he taught me to love to Israel. Uh, just so many things I learned from him. And uh, I realized that now it's my turn to uh, pass that down to, to that generation. You know, he was, he was kind of like my age when I met him and yeah. I was 18. Yeah. So that's, I want to target people. I mean, I know that my old fans will read the book. They'll love it. You know, it's lots of great stories. But, yeah. But, um, I want to really reach out and grab the part of the young person that's, especially in our world today, just with what's happened to me, there's, we have a need for soldiers today. Yeah. We got a bunch of, you know, complacent Christians can sit around and point fingers and quote scriptures all day long, but they're not active. They're not in the, they're not in the army still, him. You know? Right. Well, these kids, they've had enough of kind of the mega church malt and, um, fries and burgers and stuff. And they, <laughs> they want to roll their sleeves up and really get into it. I, I meet most of them actually through, through analog recording. Cause I still, oh, yeah. I do digital, but I still have all analog gear on my mic pre's and, and, you know, real amps and real drums and <laughs> they're all over here. And yeah. that's, but there's a lot of great gear in this house. So, yeah. So, uh, people are really, I get these kids. You, I, do you remember my album called hand of the plow? Absolutely. Yeah. I had a kid when he says that vocal sound, I can't seem to get it in my presets and stuff. What, what were you, what, what set were you using? I said, well, dude, in 1976, there was preset was like something you did in a track race, you know, you <laughs> ready, go. you know, so I said, that was actually, I went to the local harbor store in Oklahoma city, the studio where I was working at down the street and got a big piece of PVC pipe about 16 feet long and I started cutting it six inches at a time 
to try to get the millisecond delay from a microphone at the end and my vocal here uh, to be the length to fall in the cadence, the syncopation of the song in the plow. So that's how I sang it. Once I got down to about, I think it was, I think it was 13 feet, in, feet exactly when I got down there. But, but whatever it was, had that U47 Norman mic. And yeah. But the pressure of temptation. <laughs> that was it, man. EQ, you know, effect, everything. <laughs> That's what you hear is what you got. That's funny. Know? That reminds me of an interview I heard with Mark Hurd where he was talking about his Ideola album. And yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he that was when when sampling was first coming out. And one of the credits is the sound of like an eight ounce ball peen pammer hitting the fifty seven engine block of a Chevy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I miss those days. And I, I still do that stuff all the time. I create you know, I I did sampling back in the day. I, yeah. I, I wasted a lot of time, but also made a lot of great libraries. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was also, you know, there was an album just before that called Good Be Home with Paul Clark and Friends. Right, right. And on the opening song, there's a song called Holding On To You. And I wanted to get that uh, tack piano, oh my, oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, ting, 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 you know. And we couldn't get it to happen. So I got so frustrated. I just walked out of the studio and went the, to talk to the tech. And the, back then, you actually had a full-time tech on site. Right. While you're on the record. He was there to tweak the tape deck and the heads, make sure who's aligned. And. I went out there and I said, Peter, man, there's got to be some way you can tweak that machine to overdrive it or something. I got to get, I got to get this sound out of that piano out there. And he goes, man, I don't know what the hell to help you. So right, I was leaning on a toolbox of drill bits, all kinds of stuff. I went, that's okay. And I walk out to this grand piano and just dumped all the drill bits. I said, play, Bill, Bill Spear, play, Bill. And he starts playing. All these drill bits are dancing all over the strings. <laughs> I said, Bobby, put in record. That's that's a cool sound. It wasn't the sound I was looking for, but it was a really cool sound. That's what we used in the record. It was a, it was a one taker. It was over in about one minute. All the drill bits dropped in. Sound, <laughs> but it sounded awesome. You know, it was like, okay, that's good. Walk this way. Yeah. Know? Well, we don't have that that kind of sense of uh, innovation these days. It's pretty much if you you can't produce it on a computer, you can't uh, do, you can't do it. So, oh, and I love it when these like Achilles come over and. I'll push a fader up and listen to a sample of a Vox AC30 and say, why don't you take your guitar out there and plug it into my 64 AC30 and let's just see what that sounds like. You know, yeah. they plug in, holy smokes, I feel like a transistor radio compared to that thing. <laughs> um, you can't replace that stuff. Yeah. You know, samples are getting better all the time, but there's nothing like the analog fatness you know, that really brings it home. So. Or people playing real instruments, and that's one of my beefs. At the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's the concept. Let's all make a record together, you know, <laughs> seeing files around. So, well, your your first album came out right at kind of the beginning of the Jesus movement, and yep, right, and right. You, were you aware of the movement going on, or you were just making music for yourself because this is what you were you were feeling, right? Yeah. So that um, so that summer of 1970, I, I moved to this little log cabin in Berthoud Falls, Colorado, right about 9,800 feet up in the Rocky Mountains. Oh, beautiful. Colorado. Uh, just the bottom of Winter Park, and uh, I wrote about forty songs that summer. Oh wow! It was amazing, and I only had a, a New Testament pocket New Testament. My uncle's is. I look back, Dave. I just it blows me away. The power of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign call. Yeah. And I really put the quotation marks around the call. Yeah. Calling is so important today, but um, you know I piled up a bunch of songs, and then moved down to Denver. Eventually, the following year, Bill Spear and I we started a little coffee house called the Narrow Gate. Okay. Kids would come piling in every Friday and Saturday night, and you know, literally hundreds of people got saved every weekend. It was amazing. But this guy named Dick Brown, God bless him. I thought he was a really old man. I thought he's kind of old to become his coffee. He's 45. <laughs> I thought he was like really old, you know. I was like, this old man keeps coming to the coffee house every weekend. <laughs> this old man. Anyway, since I'm 69, that really seems young now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but he came in, he. He took the initiative to get a hold of a studio in Oklahoma City called Benson Sound Studios, Larry Benson. Mm -hmm. And for $3,000, you got 20 hours of recording, 10 hours of mix down time, and then 1,000 units of either uh, LP, cassettes, or (laughs) (laughs) 8-tracks. Wow. I took all all vinyl. But yes, I went down there and recorded that first album uh, in in late 71, and and, uh, it came out in 72. And within, well, the first night... I play a statewide Young Life convention wow. in Phipps Auditorium in Denver. First time I had the album, actually, we were so poor. had this is a small apartment with four guys and three dogs that we could only have room for make a coffee table of 500 vinyl records. <laughs> and then we put 500 of them in the van. 
And so I go to this 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 uh, this Young Life event, three thousand kids packed in this auditorium, and uh, the guy says, "Hey, I heard you had a record just came out." I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "You should bring him bring him in, put him in the foyer. We you, kids might want him, you know." So I told Bill, I said, "Go ahead and get a box of fifty. You never know, I might sell fifty. It'd be yeah. amazing." Well, the Holy Spirit fell that on the, on the auditorium. It was hundreds of kids came forward, and uh, you know, the next thing I know, they were the janitor of the auditorium actually busted up the altar call and said, we got to close. This is a union hall. You got to be out here in 20 minutes. And wow. so just as we were closing the door and sending people out the alley to keep praying yeah. in this close storm, Christmas time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I stuck my foot in the door. I said, Bill, go up to the foyer and get my records up there, you know, the vinyl records, you know? And he said, dude, I, I sold them all. I said, why you sold all 50? And he reaches down like a pillowcase. And I says, no, I sold all 500. <laughs> oh my and goodness that was like throwing a boulder into a little farm pond yeah was, uh, that was on a saturday night monday morning uh i got a phone call from a guy named dave i can't remember his name, johnson he ran out of a thing called the jesus store okay and he took 50 and the following morning tuesday morning uh the salesman for word records the regional director a man named bill hearn oh sure <laughs> bill really hearn he was the salesman he had West Texas, New Mexico, and Colorado in his, for his sales region. He, so he went into Dave's uh, store to stock him up. And he had me stand by the cash register. Remember, Songs in the Center, Volume 1, was stacked up and flying off the shelf. He goes, who's this guy? He says, oh, he sold 500 last Friday, last Saturday night. He goes, 500? <laughs> First, being a salesman, that's like, all right. Yeah. Know, I gotta get so he actually came to my coffee house. Came walking in, suit, tie, the whole thing. And uh, he says... Uh, you know, I'm from Word Records. Uh, who's Word, you know? Yeah. I mean, word, turd, surge. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so he's just a businessman, you know, so I had no use for him. But uh, he he actually said to me along the lines of, unless you're on Word, you'll never be anybody. I said, you know what? I'm God's son. Leave my coffee house. <laughs> <laughs> so about a week later, Jeremy Kraken calls in at the owner. He says, I understand you met my salesman, Bill Hearn. You know, I said, yeah. I like to fly up to my airplane and maybe try to express his tea in a different way. You know, he was <laughs> super laid back. He flew up there in his plane. I said, it's your gas, you know? Yeah. So he came in, big belt buckle, blue jeans, blue jeans, shirt, cowboy hat, boots, the whole, you know, Waco, Texas perfection. Right. And he made a really good point. He said, um, look, at it. he says, I'm hearing, we're hearing smatterings of a couple other people like you, Pied Pipers, as he called me. He says, mm. a couple Pied Pipers like you, they're sprouting up around the country and they've got these songs and they're making these little custom records and they're going off like wildfire and uh he said we have distributors in places you'll probably never go in your life but we can take you there and kids are going to hear the message mm -hmm. that that you are that god's given you i believe and i do believe in your generation i do believe in your songs i've heard them and i really want to help you get these songs to kids that will never meet you never hear you in your coffee house here and that that made sense to me yeah well like a good businessman myself i said well you know <laughs> when you uh go out and get involved with somebody you go on a date you know <laughs> so let's date for a couple of years so i just said let's do a distribution deal so he did he was very kind he didn't want all the pie he said i'll just read your little seed record label for you and, and he was a gentleman it was great and um you know so that's that's how it started but that first month uh you know the records spread out yeah fast so I had a pay phone in my coffee house. I get a phone call from Tom Stipe, who just passed away just, oh, just last month. Yeah. He called the coffee house. And the connection was so bad on that pay phone. <laughs> you know, a new word in our culture in the early 70s was calorie. Oh. <laughs> and my answer said, hello. He goes, yeah, this is Tom Stipe. I'm calorie. I'm, I'm, I only weigh 108. See you later. Click on <laughs> Yeah, He called back. I thought he said calorie counter. Calories. It was Calvary Chapel. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, a little, a little organization. <laughs> yeah, just a little spring up church out yeah. in California. Yeah. Which was definitely one of the, also the real fountainheads of uh, the, the Jesus movement. So, you know, it wasn't too much longer. I ended up out in California singing at, at uh, Calvary Chapel and, and uh, meeting. I actually had met Jay Truex and John Mailer and Chuck Gerard and Tommy Coombs, Love Song. And, oh, fun. And, uh, so we, uh, they were my first connection, but also I'd been writing to Phil Kagey, a friend of ours. Uh, we had a mutual friend in, in uh, Boulder. Colorado named John Bopp, who sent my first record to Phil Kagey, and he gave me Phil Kagey's first album. So oh, wow. Phil and I actually wrote letters together and sent cassettes back and forth of our 
new songs uh, a year before we met. A whole year really went by. Uh, from, from November until the following October, I met him in October when he was here uh, playing with Love Song, going yeah. for Bob Wall. And, um, you know, I had his album, uh, just loved this guy and loved his music, loved his heart, and uh, was looking forward to meeting him. And when I walked in the auditorium, he and Tommy Coombs were on the floor soldering his deluxe reverb bag connection. Oh. And, hey, Phil Keggy, I'm finally getting to meet you, Paul Clark. And he stood up and I went to hug like a six foot guy like me. It's like, whoa, <laughs> on your album, you look normal size. <laughs> it's like, honey, I shrunk the film. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, boy, out of that little guy came. I learned so much that first night from Phil, oh. especially Soundcheck. I'd never heard a guitar song like that in my life. I mean, actually, I heard like Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac and guys that I'd run sound for that were yeah. amazing, but never a peer my own age, you know. So I was just blown away by his sound. And he set the guitar down against the last ball down against his amp and uh, went to the bathroom. All I did was turn the volume. Down. I picked it up, turned the volume up and started playing. It didn't sound one thing like Phil Keggy. <laughs> I, learned, I learned that night that the tone is right here. It's right in your fingertips. fingertips. Yeah. And that, it's, that's the 10,000 hour rule. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I quickly learned that I will never be Phil Keggy. I don't need to be Phil Keggy. And uh, I, I focused my attention. I was a drummer uh, okay. all through my music career at that point. So I'd just been playing guitar for like a year when I did my first record. So I, I, uh, I thought, okay, that's what Phil does. That's his gift. Yeah. My, I have a better gift than for songwriting. That's something I really enjoyed the most was writing songs. I loved writing. I still love writing songs. So, yeah. But that's how it started. Kind of just with, went to Calvary Chapel. And next thing I know, the phones ring off the wall for this festival and that festival. Yeah. And this coffee house and that coffee house. And, from the fire escape to whatever all the great, all the great names I've, I've I've tried to go back and write down some of the names of these fires of these coffee houses you know like the fire escape and the uh, U-turn and you yeah. know hell not this way and so <laughs> God you're you're great names these coffee houses they were so and they were so um, you know we were so innocent you yeah. know so because it was just the Holy Spirit yeah. and that's that's so overlooked today i, I wrote it took care of my mom three years ago and i uh i wrote one song only a nine month period because i was so focused on taking care of her but yeah it gave me time to reflect on where i was and where the church is going to go and i wrote a song called uh, the loneliest man in the church and it's kind of couched like he's a retired pastor mm. sitting in the back row and you know he gets a little tip of the hat every now and then good to see a pastor yeah. but it's symbolic of the holy spirit you know yeah. he's really been locked out by all the slick programming and all the the accoutrements that we have in our contemporary Christian, uh, you know, presentation. And, you know, I used to sit around, Dave, and I, for listeners, and this is, please don't misunderstand me, take this to heart in a sincere way, because I helped build it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in the mid 80s, you know, I, I, I um, quit Christian music for a while, for a year, and helped plant a church. And our, our theme was, uh, where Billy Graham meets Saturday Night Live. Mm. <laughs> it was it had a kick kicking. My my band was a house band. We had twenty five professional actors in our church. We're putting on these great skits, and mm. it was really I, I created recreated the Saturday Night Live skit with a big fan and the lights and stuff. Yeah, and kind of the first kind of mega church. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it just started to really happen. We're just drawing people like flies, and and uh, you know, hanging out all the time. People from Willow Creek were coming down and looking at our skits and our plays and. Just seen that developing stuff, but it was the beginning of we put the screens up. I had a coffee shop in my house. I had I had some of my friends that from Calvary Chapel that came to our service and rebuked me for having a coffee shop, oh. for having screens and all stuff. <laughs> and then you know, a year later they all got coffee houses and screens. Yeah. <laughs> so that pioneer thing again, but but getting back to the point is that I in the early two thousands I really began to get discouraged with the direction the church is going. And I used to just think, how in the world Will the Holy Spirit stop or slow down this juggernaut mm. and get us back on our knees and where we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit? And if there's only one good thing that came from COVID, it's that. Yeah. That we've been forced inside again, house churches, Zoom Zoom church, whatever. Yeah. Uh, meeting with 10, 20, 30 people, really open your hearts up in transparency and real true fellowship. And I, I, it's been a great break, I think, for people to get back to the foundation of just, just, the presence of the Holy Spirit yeah. and just uh, being humble, not having to put on a presentation, not look at the clock, like, you know, eight minutes left till we got to 
dump them out and get the next service in, child care and parking. And, <laughs> and I used to tell people all the time, I got fired from a lot of, I consulted for a lot of churches mm-hmm. at one time. And when I was getting discouraged, I, I would say, you know, how many sermon amounts did Jesus preach? You know, yeah. one. Yeah. How many Zacchaeus in the tree were there? Uh, one. How many women at the well? Uh, one. Okay. It's like, why do you think we need to do three of everything? It's just because yeah. it's working well. Why do you have to keep, you know, multiplying it? And multiple campuses. I get it all. It's it's all part of the deal. It's, it's I'm not cutting it down. But it did make me ponder just the yeah. true effectiveness of what we really have. Who are the really true disciples there? And who are the people that are just attending and watching with their coffee mugs? And yeah. I think that's really been discerned the last year of this whole COVID thing. It's, sure. It has kind of put a line in the sand. You're either full in or you're just lollygagging. Well, I've been, one of the things that I've been very aware of um, this year, in fact, one of the key pieces of my podcast is the importance of community and the importance of the relationships with one another. And Absolutely. and you kind of teased that a little bit when you talked about going down to Calvary in California that first time and connecting with Love Song and all the guys that were down there. What was that like to experience something that you had this, this heart felt belief that God was doing something and then realized, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. The Holy Spirit is working with other people. And all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who are doing the same thing and feeling the same way. Well, number one, it was a big relief because most people thought I was crazy. I want to inject one thing at this point. From 70 to 72, maybe early 73, the larger bulk of my concerts were not in churches at all. They were in theaters and college campuses. Most of the time, a pastor or a spiritual leader in a community would come into my concerts and yell at me, come right to the front of the stage huh. and say, you let your guitar, African drum beat, demonized person, get off this stage, get out of our town. And they would take their whole youth group and some of them would go kicking and some would stay. Yeah. But it was so controversial, you know? Uh, so it was, it was amazing to see that. And I'm going to circle back to that in a minute, using that term circle back okay. <laughs> in a humorous way. I'm going to circle back in a second, but to your point is that, um, to meet other believers that were musicians mm-hmm. and that had the same experience, their testimony was just like mine. You know, just a, I used to call myself the unlicensed pharmaceutical representative. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, it was a client of my own business. Yeah, yeah. You know, so but to meet these guys, Jay, Jay and Jay Truex and John Mailer and Phil Keggy and Chuck Gerard and Tommy Coombs, you know, it was a, just a uh, such a instant joining. And those, those guys are still my friends today. They're, you know, those covenants, those are covenants. They really can't be broken. It doesn't matter what we go through, life, death, disagree, agree. It doesn't matter. The covenant never goes away. It just holds it all together. And that's what I think I really would, you know, look back so lovingly to those first days is that it was so uh, organic. That's a word that's used a lot. But it was. We didn't, wasn't forced. We all wanted to be there. Yeah. We were all in. It, it wasn't... Uh, Henceforth, when I did Songs to Serve, Volume 1, Volume 2, I could have just made it a Paul Clark album, but these were my new friends. Yeah. So what I call it? Paul Clark and Friends. That was that that was the only thing they called. There was no other name for the band. We had a we had a name called uh, Zarma and Zamar because the Hebrew word was Zamar, but we had a, a, a poster made up by a guy here in Kansas City, local here locally there's a famous barbecue called Zarda Barbecue. <laughs> He, he had a dyslexic moment and made the posters up. Zarma. <laughs> Everybody thought it was a barbecue concert. <laughs> like we were playing some barbecue shack. <laughs> yeah, so I just think back to those, um, you know, especially, let's just talk for a second about Paul Clark and Friends. And uh, I sent cassettes out to the guys, the songs, and they flew in here in Kansas City. And we rehearsed for about two days in my house, went through the songs. And the songs took shape with you know, all of us chipping in our two cents and stuff then we went down to oklahoma city the song come to his presence dave was actually a little instrumental that i was playing that morning in the hotel we were have uh, our wives with us and stuff and we were having a group bible study before we went to the studio we really wanted to be prayed up and yeah. that was another thing we all were into prayer and reading the word and having a study before we did anything yeah didn't do anything didn't do one thing until we were prayed and full of the word of god and full of the holy spirit so when we went to the studio, Jim Ford, the engineer, you know, he had everything kind of ready, uh, but he said, let's just start rolling some tape and, you know, getting some sounds and stuff. And uh, fortunately for Jim, he's a smart engineer. He had it record. Mm. A lot of guys would just get sounds and say, okay, ready? And then put it in record. He had it record 
when we were actually rehearsing uh-huh. and just getting levels. And that take on the song Come to Brothers yeah. was the one and only take of the song that I was fiddling with in the hotel room no kidding. that we laid down and then Phil laid some guitar on top of it. And then I wrote the lyrics and it became a song and became the title track. So that was literally birthed out of the fellowship of those five guys, you know, Jay Trex, John Mayer, Bill Spear, Bill Kagan, and myself, of just nothing more than the spontaneity of the moment, the Holy Spirit, the song. And if you listen really closely on headphones, there's a jam at the end when we do the, the chorus over right. and over and Phil's rocking out. But we we went on actually about seven more minutes, but oh, there was wow. a short pause because John Mailer does a drum fill, do, 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 and he hit it and it dropped his stick. It flew off. So he has about a five or six second pause again, stick, and then we kept jamming. <laughs> but we had we couldn't back then. You didn't have Pro Tools, the splice, and that and all that stuff. So we just faded it at that point. There, it was long <laughs> enough anyway. But. That was just hysterical. I think that one take, and that yeah. was it, man. It was That's awesome. called the anointing of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, uh, you never want to, I don't want to be sound like a Luddite and just, you know, uh, you know what a Luddite is. You know, yeah. guy that will try to stop the Industrial Revolution. Right. I don't want to sound like those are the best days ever, but those were really great days. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So, you know, there's a lot of that kind of commercialism. We have to do this kind of slick, poppy, um, and there's a place for that, but... Where yeah. do we, how do we encourage our young people today to really dig into building that community, making the relationship with Jesus the main thing, and making music about our experience with God rather than what tickles the ears? Well, you hit right on my hotspot now because I'll try to keep it to our two hour limit. <laughs> uh, see, uh, I grew up at a time where America wasn't franchised yet. And uh, when I got the plane in Maine, I knew I was in Maine. Hey, it's wicked queer, you know, get some lobster. You know, I knew where I was. If yeah. I was in Montana, I knew I was in Montana. Now, you know, there was a time around 1980 where I started getting off planes and I saw PetSmart, Best Buy, Bed Bath Beyond, all the same order, same color. Yeah. You know, the franchise of America is a phenomenon that actually, unfortunately, infected the church. Mm-hmm. And so what it is now, all these years later, is, uh, you know, somebody writes, you have the, the original guy that's called it something, then you got a whole bunch of copycats, you know, yeah. trying to trying to ride the wave and hoping they're they can copy that and maybe they'll get a break. You know, they go off to these music camps and schools and and you know worship centers and worship conferences and they they want to be the next Chris Tomlin or they want to be the next you know whatever. And that wasn't the case back then. When I first started, I was there was a band of just a few acts: Barry McGuire, Second Chapter of Acts. Uh, Phil Keggy, Love Song, you know, Honey Tree, and Rainy Stone Hill. I mean, there's maybe a dozen, or Andre Crouch. Yeah. There were other ones that weren't as known. They were just as good, but there was, there was this, there wasn't competition. There was total um, survival mode together. First of all, we didn't, we bonded together because we were an endangered <laughs> species in a way. You know, we were trying to be stamped out by the church. Yeah. We were starters, yeah. You know? So to young hearts today, what I say is, you know, don't look to, just try to recreate, you know, there's an old saying, what happened to the second man who invented the hula hoop? Hmm. He got a big fat zero. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's, that's what I try to tell these young kids today is that don't try to recreate the wheel. Don't try to just do the same thing. Uh, You might've heard the name Sean Foyt before. He's (laughs) been kind of in the news last year, doing his worship rallies during all this pandemic and stuff. And he came here to Kansas City and I got a chance to meet him briefly. and, And I had a picture a photograph of me standing in the exact same space. I mean, it could have been 10 feet off from where he was standing at Volker Park or uh, Nichols Parkway here in Kansas City. And I had the photograph from 1970, 50 years earlier. Yeah. I'm standing on a Volkswagen camper and long red hair. He's got long hair. You wouldn't have known it was anything different except for in my photograph, there's two naked hippies in the fountain behind their bathing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was not happening, but people came up to me all day long during that, that all day long event that Sean had. And they're going to, hey, Paul, man, this is just like the Jesus movement. There's no screens and no big PA, and it's real raw, and they're baptizing people right away, and altar call and healings. And I said, actually, I don't want to sound like a you know, Luddite, but this isn't like the Jesus movement. You know? And they said, like, what? I thought this is not I said, no. You have to remember, there, one day there wasn't a Jesus movement. And then the next day there was. Hmm. So it went from nothing to all of a sudden we had just like, you know, the iPhone or the yeah. you know, computers. One day we didn't have it, the next day there was. Yeah. Well, what Sean was doing is great, but we've seen that before. 
were in the Jesus movement and had never been seen before. My uh, the music was obviously rock. The people were familiar with rock music, mm-hmm. but they never seen anybody preach the gospel through it. That yeah. was so radical, you know. So I I really try to encourage these young um, you know artists. And I've got one living in my home. You know, my my fiance's uh, son. He's been living for three years. I've known him since he's eight years old. and He's twenty three now, but. You know, I have instilled in him that to not just be a repro me. Obviously, he's learned stuff from me. He can do everything I do, you know. But I'm I'm always for you know trying to forge him out to really look into the Holy Spirit to create in him a yeah. calling. I use that word again. Yeah. Because you can't, you cannot, you can fake so many things. There's some things you can't fake. You cannot fake calling and gifting. There's right. there's a you know, it's like Phil. Okay, you get back to that point. You know, yeah. I wasn't called to be a lead guitar player. And there, I could have taken a thousand lessons from him and try to get my tones down and stuff. And I've heard a thousand guys that want to play like Phil Kagey mm-hmm. do the same finger thing, the same tones, and the the ebo, and they just copy Phil. But there's only one Phil Kagey. Yeah, you know, that's the gift. And so I just try to tell these kids, you know, let God form you yeah. into the calling He's called you. Don't be a franchise. Yeah. And I, I find that most of these kids. And I'm, I'll go a little further. Most of these kids I talk to that are leading worship at these churches and stuff that are they're hip, they got the tattoo, they got the glasses, they're, they're the whole thing. But they're they're they want to break out and be themselves, but they're fearful of getting fired if they don't follow the orders are given, so to speak. You know, that there's a certain uh, we're hiring you to do this, you know, mm-hmm. we want you to act like that guy, or you're the Chris Tom of our church or whatever. And they're you know, they got newly married and they got a baby or two babies at home. And their biggest fear is losing their job and going back to Home Depot. Yeah. They're afraid the church will give them a bad review if they quit and then they'll be able to get a job in their church with leading worship. And, you know, I just, I try to tell those kids, you know, look outside the church then, you know, because if you're not, if you don't want to swim in that pool, then you just, you're just, you're going to drown in it. So be willing to trust God and get out and, and play wherever you can to get your voice heard and get, get use your gifts. Yeah. And God designed you for, if you give you a hammer, don't take a saw to the gig, you know? Well, you know, it's interesting because as you've been talking, I've been thinking about how creative God is, and we talk about the fact that no two people have the same fingerprint. Mm-mm. So why in the world would we have to all do the same shtick? It's beyond me. It's maddening. I wrote a song called Straight River years ago. In fact, actually, I was honored to uh, to be a writer in a book called Inspired by Tozier. Hmm. It was uh, Laura Barlow. I've got see it over there in, the, in my bookshelf. There's 59 different people from all walks of life, musicians, songwriters, bartender, mm-hmm. devil, whatever. Was, uh, we were all given a, a, a quote from Tozier, and I ended up picking the song from my, uh, picking a quote that fit into my song, Straight River, that it was an experience I had flying home from New Mexico and coming home after playing down there. And across western Kansas, of course, is highly agricultural. Right. And flying I, a thousand flights later, I just had me looking out the window. And I see all these perfect squares and perfect circles. But then I just look kind of like zoomed in in my mind's eye and noticed that inside those squares and circles, not one of them matched. They were mm. all different yeah. in terrain, but they were the grid of it laid out. And uh, so I wrote a song called Straight River, how, you know, there's, there's no, uh, there's, there's, there's only one. Yeah. There's just, there's just one, you know, just, uh, I've never seen a square mountain, you know, I never seen a straight river. The only straight river I've actually seen in my whole life was when I was in uh, Greece, down in Corinth, actually. Huh. Um, and it was a canal made by man. I said, I told my group, I said, you know what? I always talk about there's no such thing as a straight river, but this is a straight river. But look at it, it's all dug and honed by man. And uh, that yeah. always stood out in my mind that there's man made. We always try to take the shortest cut. Yeah. We don't, you don't see a man made river wandering all around up and down, wasting <laughs> concrete and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's like A point to point B, you know. But God's not that way. Yeah. His paths are up and down and right and left. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And I really appreciate that with the Lord because it makes yeah. every day yeah. really exciting, you know. I mean, yeah. it makes, to me, it keeps my, not that I need to keep my interest because I love Him and that's enough. Yeah. Uh, I think anybody that's followed me around for 50 years, w- the word boring would never come into <laughs> existence because it's always an adventure, you know? Well, so how how would you encourage young people today? Well, I mean, anybody listening needs to hear this, but how would you encourage young people to say, Lord, what is it that you have specifically for me to do? And how do you, how do you discern that in this world of, you know, YouTube influencers and all that other stuff? Yeah. 
Well, that's, uh, to me, uh, at 69 years old, I wish I could roll the clock back 50 years and be a relevant 19-year-old with a voice and a platform. I would love to be turned loose in this world it's, it's of the hipsters right now, uh, especially knowing what I know now. But uh, <laughs> once again, without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to impress anybody. And uh, in fact, that's, that's probably a, a good start even to answer that question. We are so uh, addicted, literally addicted to impressing. You know, I back in the day, I wasn't out to impress anybody. I just showed up, plugged my guitar in, started playing. I wasn't out yeah. to, I just obeyed, you know, and, and the Holy Spirit always showed up. So today, what I would say to young people is that you, we live in such a politically correct warped world right now where right is wrong and, and black is white and everything some stuff repeats like this last year with black lives matters i mean i saw that in 1968 i was 17 i went to the democratic convention and i carried a sign kill the pigs and you know through the molotov cocktails and it's just 50 years later the same demons are coming back and with different names on themselves you know so but for me what changed that and this is really important for me to say this i'm glad you brought this up what when I got born again, in fact, I'll use those two words because the early 70s, when you were born again, you might as well, I, I won't use the word, but the N word or a Jew. It was all, it was a, it was a name tag, it was a brand. Hmm. You were branded, oh, you're a born againer. It was like a you're a lower class citizen, you're a you know, a, a despicable, whatever you want to hmm. call it, but you're a born againer. You'd think people would be happy that I was off drugs and heroin and LSD and had my life straightened out. Instead, they hated me more. <laughs> so when I look at kids today, I just think the thing, the challenges you have to reach a generation that has no, there's no truth. Yeah. Truth has been so decimated amongst these homes and schools and education systems and families broken up that there's no truth. But that is exactly what it was in the, in the hippie movement. We thought we were going to Woodstock and all mm -hmm. the festivals and living communes because we thought that was truth. But when it disintegrated like sand in the hand, water in the hands or water on the pavement in Arizona in the middle of August, <laughs> when it disintegrated and all of a sudden it became not love your brother, but rip your brother off. And the drugs were bad and people were overdosing right and left. And, you know, uh, all that came to a, a head and just pus came out mm -hmm. and it went from from peace to pus. I'll call it, I'll, I'll spot, I should write that down. That's a song title right there. Yeah, write that down. I've never said that before in my life. That's actually a good deal. Went from peace to pus. That's a really good way of describing it. So I find that landscape right now. I look at, well, I see these young kids, you know, revolting and tearing down Portland, you know, very Oregon stuff. Uh, you know, to me, that's just the pus. Yeah. And you know what the really was for, for the hippie movement was being born again. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit literally spoke to me I don't know if you've seen that series uh, called The Chosen. Uh, it was a series. Uh, it's come on TV. There's like eight episodes. And, you know, I turn it on. You get it on your iPhone app and you put it up on your TV. And, and I, I watched it. I really enjoyed it. It, was, you know, it wasn't religiously, but the seventh episode was Jesus and Nicodemus. The guy who plays Nicodemus, he better get landed by a big studio because he was phenomenal. Mm. But it, it just reminded me. And literally while I was watching it, just relaxing in the evening time, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, that was your message the first three years of Jesus movement. I ended every one of my concerts with You Must Be Born Again and then Song for Salvation off Songs for the right, right. One. And that's why I ended for a couple of years. I ended all my concerts with those two songs. He said, That is the remedy to these kids you're watching right now. Yeah. They have they need to be born again. They need to have their like turning cars over, they need to have their hearts turned over. Yeah. And they're not going to be the ones that come into the church that we've modeled to them. Right. They're not interested in the the hill song or the you know saddleback they're not just in that model whatsoever you know they are looking for one-on-one -on -one. they're looking for the power not the big chromed out polishers that's not to cut hill song down or saddleback or any of the names i might throw out today i'm not cutting them down at all don't everybody we all have a place yep body christ but what i want to be clear about is that i don't see any of those models reaching those people right i don't see it happening to me, it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit and boots in the ground, one-on-one -on -one encounters at a coffee shop or eating or a guy you work with or whatever, but, you know, just being a conduit to bring something into a dynamic encounter where a person is born again. Because that's, 
That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. Unless somebody's born in the spirit, they're never going to get it. They're never going to act it out. There'll be no fruit in their life of the Holy Spirit, and you don't have a Christian life. Yeah, just that simple. Well, the thing that I see missing, too, is, you know, we're talking about the greatest gift we've ever received. And yet I go to Christian concerts these days, and I can't tell you the last time I heard an altar call. I can't hurt tell you the last time I heard somebody say, hey, you need to know about my friend Jesus because he's going to change your life. And I think we as Christians have become so scared of being ostracized that yeah. we don't want to share. And, and yet we have the, the solution for the world. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's like having a fur in your garage and taking your minibike out for a spin. You know, it's like <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. I, yeah. don't, I don't understand it. Uh, I, I do. I'm empathetic to it because, once again— it's something that's been uh, in the DNA handed down to them by the by the franchising mm-hmm. of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just repro, 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 and obviously, discipleship itself is a form of is a form of franchising. But look at we're all the twelve disciples. Are they all the same? Heck, no. Mm-hmm. Peter and John are opposite from me. They're Thomas. They're all different. You know. Yeah. So why try to copycat what you see the top guy doing? You know. I used to tell people all the time across from every Rich Carlton there's a red roof in. Because <laughs> not everybody can pay not everybody can afford to stay at the five star hotel. Yeah. And not wants to stay at the five star hotel. But a lot of people would never they wouldn't sleep. They'd be so nervous in a in a five in a five star hotel. They'd be like, Wow, don't touch anything. Don't don't sit on that bed, you know, you might wrinkle it, you know. But they go across the street to the red roof in, they throw their feet up and then drop catch up on the bed spread. They wouldn't care less. They feel at home. Yeah. So people need to do that spiritually. They need to be where they are and, and uh, let God use them where they are. But also we've got to get back to that redemptive, simple message. You must be born again. It's a stumbling block. Men don't make no mistake about it. It is a stumbling block and you will get rejected. Uh, it's guaranteed rejection. If you want to have a re- ministry in rejection, preach, you must be born again. But for those that hear that have ears to hear, that's, that's the way you get saved. And that's what turns them into, as you know, I mean, most of the people in the Jesus movement, I don't have been a Christian for like a year. I'm out, you know, praying for sick and casting demons out of people and seeing thousands get saved. I wasn't qualified. My uncle was a really polished theologian. He still is 93 years old. He's, he's a, one of my mentors. He had written 47 books, and he's a Lutheran, and he, he knew he was just a really knowledgeable guy. But if you'd thrown him into the Jesus movement and try to get him to preach his sermons, they wouldn't have, they would bounce right off. Right. Just like if you put me in his pulpit, it wouldn't have worked, you know? Yeah. But, uh, so in the atmosphere you're in and the gifting and calling you're in, uh, you have to give that message. You must be born again. It's just, otherwise we're just, um, uh, in fact, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. Mm-hmm. And Proverbs 14, I think that's, I think that's 14, four, um, to remember, but you know, we don't need churches that are, uh, perfect and all shiny and polishy to try to impress the world that when they come in, they go, wow, this is, this church looks cool. And that stage is really cool. And those lights are really cool. We don't need that. I grew up every summer when baseball season was over. I mean, the very next morning, my dad threw me in his car and drive me six hour drive up to Ely, Iowa, just outside of Cedar Rapids, the farm he lived on when he grew up. And I had to put in two to three weeks of hard labor before school started. And I learned something about the farm. First of all, everything stunk. <laughs> Yep. Second of all, everything was broken. You're always fixing something. Yeah. Number three, the work was never done. I could go on and on with the list, but later on, as I got into photography and I was actually being hired to start taking photographs of stuff, pre-Photoshop and all that, I was actually having to try to get a composition that I could try to get the sparkly bridle and the white fence and the red barn and all that without Photoshopping. I had to actually go out and, and use a real camera and, and real filters and real light and wait until 3 in the afternoon and for the golden hour to start and all that, but I learned that that um, these the covers of magazines didn't look any like uh, it's like Farm and Home magazine did not look like the farm I worked on. <laughs> and it's the same thing in church. If you want the perfect clean nut church where everything is in perfect order and uh, you know no wrinkles, and because I've gone into so many church meetings as a consultant, and I asked people on a Monday what was great about the service yesterday. I was always shocked that somebody would say, well, nothing went wrong, at least. That was a plus. And I was like, wow. what's wow. wrong with something going wrong? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay for something goes wrong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. That's what makes it real, you know? And uh, so I just want to tell anybody listening today, it doesn't matter how old you are, 
don't worry about something going wrong. Don't worry about your presentation being, you know, polyester and, and, and iron perfectly and stuff like that. You, you know, it's, you got to get down there and get dirty and get, get in the dirt with the people and, and uh, meet them on their terms, but you got to give them, you must be born again. We're cheating people. Yeah. We don't, you know, help them uh, get to the point to see, wow, okay, I need something completely new. I need to be born again. You know, there's nothing like it. Still the greatest miracle I've ever seen. I've seen here. I've seen physical healings. I've seen demons come to people that I've never seen that changes more radical in anybody's life than when they're born again. They just all of a sudden one day they aren't, and the next day they are. Just like yeah. the Jesus movement, one day it wasn't, and the next day it was. Do I do I want a Jesus movement 2.0? Yeah, but you know what? I don't think it's going to be anything like 1.0. I don't yeah. think it's going to be just a refried beans of what God did 50 years ago. Yeah. He's got something new, and that's why even in these tumultuous times we're living in. For me, it's very despairing, but at the same time, I'm seeing the stage being set for the curtain to open and people will go, oh my God, <laughs> they're yeah. going to see something yeah. they've never seen and it's going to totally blow their minds and they will be have to make a decision, you know, yeah. if not too late. So that's my hope and prayer. Oh, so rich, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing. And, uh, well, are we done? Then we buy five minutes. That, I know it was a fast hour. Um, uh, wow. I, I just, I, I, I want our listeners to really, really hear that God created you warts and all, and your yep. imperfections are going to make you approachable to other people to yep. where then you have the opportunity to share. And, and that's what you're saying over and over again, is that God can use you exactly as you are. You don't have to be somebody else. No, you have to be exactly who God created you to be. In fact, concentrate on not being somebody else. Yeah, concentrate on letting the Lord put you on His lathe and turn the turn the piece of wood just like He wants it to be. You know, I want to say something real quick. I know we're out of time, but uh, I just want to tell a quick story. I yeah, feel like the Holy Spirit's put in my heart. One of the things that keeps people from moving forward today in this world, because we are laced with it right now. It's our drinks have been spiked with bitterness. Mm. Uh, there's Right, left, conservative, whatever. Bitterness is choking our culture, and people didn't realize they're drinking the Kool-Aid. And uh, there's a story in Exodus 15 where the children of Israel, after four years of bondage, you know, they backed up to the Red Sea, and God delivers them. And you can imagine the cacophony of sounds of all those horses and soldiers yelling on their armor, and all of a sudden it got quieter and quieter until it was nothing. And then they take off. The next 72 hours are you know, rejoicing and singing their songs, and all of a sudden they're thirsty, and everyone's mumbling, complaining, all of a sudden being <laughs> human beings, and they come to the, to a body of water. You know, every every group like that has scouts that go out, mm-hmm. and the scouts must have gone. It doesn't say that in the scripture. I don't want to twist the scripture, but somebody brought the word back that there's water ahead, and I doubt it was like, no, brother, I prefer you. You know, you know, you go first. I, I I can go a few more. I'm sure it was a young stepping on grandma and all that, you know, trying to get the water. But they got there, and the water was bitter. And uh, the, the most amazing thing happened, you know, is that they turned on Moses. How could you bring us here? Oh, this water's undrinkable. <laughs> but that bitter water was changed by Moses taking the piece of wood. God told him, take the wood and throw it into the water and become sweet. And that symbolism is the cross of Christ. Mm. We take the cross and throw it into the bitter pool. It becomes sweet. You know, in Revelation 12, 11, it says they overcame him, Satan, the believers overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives and death. And that is like a three-legged stool. If you, There's no such thing as a two-legged stool. You'll fall right. over a one-legged <laughs> tripod, which takes that three, the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and they love not their lives and the death. If you can take that tripod and make that your foundation, you will go a long ways and you will dismantle that bitterness that's out in the world today. People are cancerous with bitterness, unforgiveness, hate, anger, all that. It, it will end that that wood of the cross will sweeten the whole thing. It will change the whole dialogue, the canvas. So to all those who are listening today, just encourage you to throw the cross of Christ into the bitter pool of our culture right now and let God make the water sweet. Amen for that. I couldn't have said it any better, my friend. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, let's, do it. let's let's do it. Let's be full of his agape love. Be humble. Be kind. Be patient. 
and wait for the Lord to move. He'll do. He's going to do the work. Holy Spirit is going to do it. Well, as you know, Paul, every Saturday we send out a newsletter to a bunch of folks who have committed to praying for musicians. Uh, how can we be praying for you specifically? I know you and I've shared a little bit uh, off camera of some things that are going on, but uh, what can we ask uh, our folks to pray with you about and for you about? In the hospital. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I literally walked the door, signed on turkey sandwich while I was getting this all hooked up and and uh, sitting here like to act like nothing went wrong today. <laughs> I went... Uh, 15 months ago, I went in for a routine stint procedure. I've always been athletic my whole life, in great shape physically, and all of a sudden, I had a little thing called DNA popped onto my screen uh, from my dad and my uncles and their makeup. And you can't organic this off, you can't work it off the club just the way you're designed and made and imperfection again. Yep. So I went in for a routine stint procedure, but it didn't go well. The, the uh, mix up, they gave me uh, two milliliters of lidocaine, I'm deathly allergic to lidocaine, and went anaphylactic shock. And, and then the second shot, the same thing happened. I got messed up 15 months ago, fast forward. The last 15 months have been really hard for me. I've, I suffered some damage and uh, I've been retraining my nerve paths and my brain to you know, work again. Fortunately, it didn't affect my guitar playing or my singing, but, but it's been a slow, frustrating road back. I, I'm not in the physical condition, the stamina that I was, and I'm better than I was a year ago for sure, but I'm not back to where I wanna be yet. So that's been fresh. I got a four-month head start on COVID. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. Being inside and working out. But So I just pray that the uh, people want to pray for me, that the Lord will continue to heal me and strengthen me. And then also, after 20 years of being uh, single, uh, I'm engaged right now. This, wow. is a, this is a pretty big deal. So I just sold my house and looking for land. And uh, I've, apparently I'm on the new frontier for a new adventure with, as a we instead of a me. I don't mind being transparent. They need prayer. So I'd say, I appreciate anybody who wants to pray for me, come alongside us and, and uh, just a new adventure, see what happens. Wow, that time went fast, didn't it? It sure was fun hearing about how God opened doors for Paul as he was obedient to the call of God on his life. And I super appreciate how passionate he is to see young musicians use their gifts to share about their faith in Jesus. Did you notice that Paul several times talked about being born again? For some of you, that may be a new phrase. What does being born again really mean? Well, that phrase comes from the Bible when a Jewish leader named Nicodemus was talking to Jesus about his faith, and Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was confused as well, and you can find that story in John chapter 3. Jesus goes on to say that the Holy Spirit will give birth to a new spiritual life, and that happens when you ask Jesus to come into your heart and turn over the control of your life to him. If you haven't already asked Jesus to be in charge of your life, you could do that right now. Maybe you want the passion and focus that our guest Paul Clark had today. Or maybe you just realize that your life just keeps spiraling out of control. I tell you, Jesus is the answer, and he wants to help you be born again. You can take that step right now by just praying a simple prayer. And if you want to repeat after me, you can do that. It's just simple like this. Jesus I know my life is a mess and that I need help. I know that I've done things that are contrary to how you want them to go. Please forgive me of my sins and give me a new life. Please come into my life and I give it all to you and I let you control it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe the 20th time, I'd love for you to tell me about it. I would love to celebrate with you, and I'd also like to help you find a place where you could get plugged into a group of people who are learning how to follow Jesus every day. Would you send me an email and tell me about this prayer that you just prayed? You can send a quick note on christianmusicarchive.com contact. I, I can't wait to hear from you. As always, thanks for joining me for this conversation today on the Christian Music Archive podcast, a member of the New Release Today podcast network. I'm grateful that we get to spend this time together each week hearing stories of God's amazing faithfulness. As a regular listener to this podcast, 
you can help support the work we are doing in one of three ways. First, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app. A five-star rating or a review really helps spread the word about this show. Second, sign up to be on our prayer team. Go to christianmusicarchive.com slash prayer and enter your name and email. I'll send you a weekly email with a list of seven artists who have asked for prayers that week. And finally, reach out and say hello. You can do that on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Patreon by searching for at CCM Exchange. Or you can also just drop me a line on the website, christianmusicarchive.com. Next week, I'm talking with Kemper Crab, and you definitely don't want to miss this conversation. So be sure to join me every week when I share stories of the people you'll find on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. But to wrap things up today, I want to remind you, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>